new CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. I survive. You make quick, smart decisions. You never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Kick is live. It is Sunday night, November 7th, the Overlord 2021. Just walked in the door. Colin, I'd say, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes ago, fresh from the airport. Uh, an unmitigated disaster of a travel weekend, which was sandwiched on each side of a great trip to College Station. Tuesday's Late Kick Extra podcast will detail all this. Let me give you a little tease. Let me just give you a little sneak peek. I had to drive a 12-person van across Texas, and it wasn't even the worst part of the trip. So yes, we're gonna save that for Tuesday. I know I have a very cheery disposition right now and I can fake the smile. I am irate underneath. But at least I didn't get upset this weekend. We went one and oh. In fact, Ramen Noodle went seven and three this weekend. So we are jam-packed. We are high atop downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Little quiz for you to start the show tonight. Little quiz. If a tree falls in the forest, but there are so many other trees falling that you can't hear the tree, then who's gonna beat Georgia? That's the college football quiz right now because there's a lot of that stuff going on. And then there's Georgia splattering folks left and right. And it seems like every week now Georgia starts a game and I get texts from my buddies, Georgia looking a little vulnerable. And then I check the score 10 minutes later and I see Georgia's up by three touchdowns. And I say, which Georgia are you talking about? Well, they, they looked vulnerable early. Well, that's the way an anaconda works. It's just it suffocates you. And then all of a sudden you say, I once had a life and now I don't. But outside of Georgia, wow, what a weekend. So we're going to talk about it. Obviously, Ohio State gets by Nebraska. Dare I say Alabama survives a beleaguered LSU team, which is more than we can say for the likes of Michigan State. And it's more than we can say for the likes of Wake Forest. Baylor goes down. Auburn goes down. I was at the Auburn-Texas A&M game. A lot to talk about there. A lot to talk about on several fronts. It's Sunday night. That means it's rapid reaction night. And we're going to touch on uh, too many games to count. We've got a jam-packed show, and I've got several different angles. One of the benefits of having to fly to about 17 different cities today is I had a lot of time to just think about some things. And this, fortunately for me, is an avenue with which we can get it all out so I can go home and lay my head down tonight and be worry-free. We're going to leave it all on the show tonight. Early best bets coming up. We had a great week on the Ramen Noodle Express. I've got four of them for you tonight. And there is a strong... And I mean a very strong SOS signal emanating from out of Gainesville, Florida. We've been picking it up throughout the day. They are calling for a rescue operation. And I think, I think it has something to do with getting blown out at South Carolina last night. That's what I think. I don't want to assume, but that's what I think. So without question, a jam-packed show. And without question, a lot to get to. I am so, so thankful for the folks that I interacted with in College Station this weekend. I'm going to get to the Auburn-Texas A&M game a little bit later. But man, what a weekend. I don't know how many pictures I took with you guys. I don't know how so many of you got on the field. Either every single late kick fan in College Station was allowed on the field or 
the ratio of the folks that I met on the field that love the show, uh, if that translates to the crowd, we're doing a whole lot right here. So thank you for that. Met our academy reps out there. So I got a lot to talk about. We'll get to that in due time. But wow, where else can I start? I, I, I had a unique experience last night because a lot of these games I was listening to the ending of. So let's just dive right in. Florida got obliterated by South Carolina yesterday. The final is 40-17. to 17. You may think to yourself, huh, must have been a close game throughout. And then South Carolina, it must have been plus turnovers for them. They must have scored 21 non-offensive points. No, no. It's just a, a wire-to-wire woodshedding, just a full-on splattering in Columbia. If you get caught in a mudslide, that happens. These things will happen from time to time. But that's not what happened here. No one got caught in the mudslide. No one was taken by surprise. You get caught in the mudslide, eh, these things happen. But if you drive by three different warning signs that the road is flooded ahead and then you end up getting your car washed away, that's on you. And so a lot of people last night were watching this game and some of you were even stunned by it. And I'm not so sure why, because we essentially spoiled the ending for you. If you watched the game, or better yet, if you didn't, and you just saw the final score and you found yourself saying, Self, I wonder how this happened. Well, Colin, let's tee the video up because it probably happened a little something like this. But you and I both know there could be something else in play. And that something else could be that team coming out of the Georgia game could be lifeless. They could be gutted. It could be a fractured locker room. I'm not in there. I'm not giving you any firsthand accounts. I'm saying we've seen that happen before. And if they are in that state of mind, then nothing's off the table. They go to South Carolina Saturday. They're like a 19-point favorite. They could lose. They could lose the game outright. I'm telling you, that will be Super Bowl mode for South Carolina and Shane Beamer. Don't think for a second Florida couldn't lose that game. Florida was the mosquito, and South Carolina was the Mack truck. And so it happened last night. The worst case happened. You know, just as much as we sat here and talked about last week, the best case for Dan Mullen being win the rest of your games, you'll be favored in, and you'll be 8-4, and four, win the bowl game, you'll be 9-4, and four, make some staff changes, you'll be good. All that was assuming best case. We're done with that. Okay, best case is long gone at this point. Even though it's only been 24 hours, best case is long gone. Hey, I want to take you back. I want to take you back to bowl season last year. You remember how some of us, including me on this show, we were criticized when we dared speak ill of Dan Mullen for the way he handled the ending of the season and the way they no-showed that Cotton Bowl. And the feedback that we got, at least the feedback that I got, was, well, it was a meaningless game. And, well, the season was over. Dan Mullen even went as far as to say, eh, this team, the 2021 team, or the 2020 team, they played their last game. December. They played their last game in the SEC championship game. So Florida goes to the Cotton Bowl and they get annihilated by Oklahoma, but a lot of people really didn't take well to the criticism because as Dan Mullen said, and some people reiterated because he said it, uh, season's over. Season was over in December. This is a, an early sneak peek at the 2021 team. I had a big problem with it. I documented it on the show. Some of you agreed, some of you didn't, but the pushback that I got from those of you who didn't was, well, he was right. The season was over. That's not the point, guys. That's not the point. The point was you allowed your team to quit on a season, and then you endorsed it. And here's the problem with endorsing the 2020 team not making it to the finish line. Guess who was watching? The 2021 team. And now the 2021 team is refusing to make it to the finish line, only it's not bowl season. You've still got a month of the season as of last night still to go. And that is the impetus 
for why the downfall of Dan Mullen's tenure at Florida has already begun. I don't like talking about it. I have said this many times. I have been the last one to the table on the whole Dan Mullen hot seat talk and still am. But the reason that Dan Mullen's exit from Florida has already been put into motion is because he endorsed last season his team quitting before they hit the finish line. And now the 2021 team watched that happen. And now they're doing the same thing. Florida in their last eight to 10 power five games, it's, it's terrible. It's one of the most popular stats floating around today. Look, I'm just going to put it out there for you. I have no clue how Dan Mullen survives this thing. I'm not saying he's fired by midnight. I'm saying long-term, I have no clue how Dan Mullen gets this thing back on the tracks, but I would love for you to sell me on it. If you can sell me in some logic-based, tangible way on how Dan Mullen could correct all the wrongs now with Florida football, I'd be more than happy to listen, but you got to overcome what I'm looking at right now. To be clear, I'm looking at zero recruiting momentum, which you would absolutely need to make the wrongs right. You would certainly need game-changing classes already in the stable. They don't necessarily have that right now. Recruiting is trending in the wrong direction there, not the right direction. You've lost your team twice in as many seasons. Last year in the bowl game, and then the 2021 team watched you endorse that happening, and now they've done it too. And here's the problem. The problem with this team quitting, to put a finer point on it before the season's over, is every team you'll have from here on out is watching this one do the same thing. And what are you going to do about it? You can't do anything about it. You don't get a team back in the season once you've lost them. But let's continue, because if you're going to sell me that this is possible, I'd love to hear it. You've got to overhaul your staff. Now, that's what the main go-to is today for the few who are still trying to sell you on the idea that Mullen can get this thing right. Again, I'll be happy to listen to it, but you got to find me to be clear what they need out there, and that is all world coaches and recruiters who are going to be willing to come on board what is viewed by many internally as a lame duck situation. It's not finding them, guys. you got to get them to come on board. Who's going to come on board? that's actually worth having to the degree that you need to turn a program around. I don't see them. I have no clue who that would be. And the fan base is overwhelmingly gone at this point. So those are the things that are stacked against Dan Mullen. If you can sell me on him being able to put together a magic elixir to overcome that, I'm all ears. Trust me, I'm all ears. But man, just as Florida had a disastrous Saturday night, this was really good for South Carolina. And I was really happy for their purposes to see them pull this off because no one really cares down the road. In fact, I don't think in Columbia they care right now that Florida was without some players because of the flu. No one in Columbia, South Carolina is feeling sorry about Florida is what I'm telling you. And so at South Carolina, what matters is they get to write in all bold, 72-point font, South Carolina in year one under Shane Beamer beat Florida, even in year one. You know, Shane Beamer's been there about four minutes. Dan Mullen's been there about four years. Whose team played harder for him last night, though? Which team seemed more all-in? Which team seemed more likely to go over the cliff for their head coach? It ain't the one with tenure. It was South Carolina, and it was Shane Beamer's team. Now what they have to do is what we always talk about with early staffs and early on in the tenure of a new staff. You're looking for tangible things to sell as a vision. That's what you're looking for. So you got to win them. But once you win them, you got to package it up and you got to take it out of there. And you got to tell kids this is just a small inkling of a sample size of what we're going to be capable of down the road. Hey, Marcus Satterfield, credit him. That's the offensive coordinator at South Carolina. He's gotten a ton of 
ire directed his way this year because they haven't gotten the results they've wanted to, and the quarterback situation's been a mess. I mean, we, we all know what the deal is there, but they had a really good game last night. A really good game. They ran the ball well, and now they're five and four. They go to Missouri this week. That game's right around a pick 'em. It's going to be one or two points either way. And then they've got Auburn coming in, and then they've got Clemson coming in. Got to win one of them to be bowl eligible. What if they win more than one of them? I don't know that it's so far out of the realm of possibility. And so that's going to be fun to watch. But man, I. I honestly don't know what to expect at Florida. I thought Thomas Goldcamp had a really, really good article over on Swamp 24-7 today. And he talked about the perception out there that, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be too costly to buy Dan Mullen out. Well, that's all relative, first off. Secondly, there's never going to be a more opportune time to do it than right now. Because what Thomas pointed out, which I guarantee you most of you, including me, didn't really even realize is their assistant coaches are on deals that expire at the end of this year. Translation, yeah, you may have to pay 12 some odd million dollars to buy Dan Mullen out if you so choose. Not the staff. Staff's out of there anyway. If you don't renew them, they're out of there anyway. And so you, you got a decision to make down there. Oh, it's not my decision. It's the athletic director's decision down there. He, they've been locked at the hip ever since the Mississippi State days. I understand. But Scott Strickland also understands this is business. And if you don't pull the trigger when it's time to, then your boss will pull the trigger down the road because you failed to. Scott Strickland's not stupid. He understands that. I think we're past the point of no return with Dan Mullen. I've said that twice in about as many months about head coaches in this conference. Um, not that I'm celebrating being right. We're one for one so far on that. I think last night was so huge. This is not a conclusion drawn over four quarters but it's so much bigger than just that game. It's symbolic of what it represents now two years in a row. You go find me the last time that you saw a head coach lose his teams two years in a row and then get it back and achieve at a higher level than he had before. I just don't think that sample's out there. So either Dan Mullen's going to do something that's never been seen in the history of the sport, or you got to do something that's been done many times in the history of the sport, and that is cut bait when it's time to and not waiting a year or two too long. So I did not lead the show tonight with the Renaissance Tour because we are so fresh off the road that graphics are still being made and things are still being rendered. But I'm told, direct, yes, okay, I'm told now that we are ready to reveal, whereas yesterday we were in College Station for Auburn at Texas A&M and what a scene that was. We're going to talk about it in just a little bit. There were two really, really glaring possibilities for where we could go this week. The first, of course, is a, I think it's a, Collins, my AP guy. I don't know where they're ranked today. I assume it's a top 15-ish matchup. Ole Miss playing host to Texas A&M. And that's drivable distance for us. And it's in the SEC. And you know that they claim that we have SEC tattooed on our lower backs around here. But I've already seen both those programs twice in person this year. And we're going to a place I've never been. And we're going to see a team that I have yet to see this year. And so... In week 11, the Renaissance Tour is not headed to Oxford. In week 11, the Renaissance Tour is taking us back to the Lone Star State, this time Waco, Texas. Most famously, the scene of my tire blowout on the side of I-35, but we're not passing through this time. We're stopping in Waco, and we're going to McLean Stadium. It's a high noon, 11 central time kickoff. You know how much I love the Fox Big Noon kickoff. It's Oklahoma, it's Baylor. We are very much looking forward to that. You see, Baylor lost yesterday. So you may think to yourself, 
oh, that game probably lost a little bit of the shine, didn't it? I guess from a marquee perspective it did. This line opened at OU minus five. Full disclosure, I have not even had time to check what it's done since then. Baylor will be the very definition of being in wounded animal mode this week. And a lot of these teams out in the Big 12 are still in it for the Big 12 championship hunt. So, I mean, Iowa State's watching this. Oklahoma State's watching this. The world is watching Oklahoma because this is OU coming out of the bye. We watched Bama stumble badly out of their bye this past weekend. Well, what will Oklahoma do? Really excited to get out to Waco, and that is just a little ways up the road from where we were yesterday, which brings me to my next point. And a lot of you found out the easy way or the fun way yesterday. Our friends from Academy Sports and Outdoors were in College Station along with us. And so I met up with the guys outside the stadium about an hour before kickoff, and it was so great. because I mean, it looked like a high-level drug deal going down, but there was nothing illegal. But when I tell you the way that we exchange the Academy gift cards is very much on the low, I mean it's very much on the low. I mean, I'm walking out there to meet Alex. Alex is one of our guys from Academy. And you know it's a look over both shoulders, put a folded wrinkly envelope out of the pocket that is in a shape that an envelope normally is not in the shape of. And it's kind of, hey buddy, high five, how you doing? Boom, put it back in your pocket and there we go. We got about a thousand some odd dollars worth of gift cards we're walking around with and they got distributed. Boy, did they ever. So there are a lot of folks walking the streets of College Station, Texas, and the surrounding area today with Academy gift cards, courtesy of our partners there. Of course, the official outdoor sporting goods supplier of the Big 12 and the SEC and of Late Kick Live. Just getting started in our partnership with them. So happy to have them on board, and they could not say enough good things about the social interactions and the emails and whatnot that they've seen from you guys taking pictures of those receipts, which I've been accused of helping pocket cash for myself. That's not quite how that works, but it does help validate that they came to the right place. And they said as such yesterday. So because they can't talk to you directly, I'm telling you, folks at Academy, because of the interaction that you've had kind of with me on, on Twitter and Instagram and whatnot, they've noticed. And so they're gonna do more business with us down the road in probably an even bigger way, which probably means more and more prizes and free stuff for you. So it's a win, 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 win. Director Colin even got a card today. It's a win all across the board. So thanks so much to Academy. Great to see those guys yesterday. Who knows? Maybe they're in Waco. Maybe I'll get a fresh batch again this week. But uh, man, the, the free Academy gift cards were flowing. That's one of the benefits when we come to your town. I mean, yeah, sure, networks can host a pregame show in your backyard, but what do you really get from that? We're giving you stuff. We're moving product in the most legal of ways. We're moving product right there in your backyard. So thank you to Academy, and thank you to all of you in College Station. Again, we're going to talk about that game a little bit more later in the show. Okay, uh, the game that I probably got more questions about today, believe it or not, than any other game, Alabama 20 LSU 14. This is not a first half total. This is the final score of the game. Alabama hangs a 20 spot on LSU at home, no less. LSU had several shots to take the lead and perhaps win the game because I don't know how equipped Bama was to answer a score if LSU did score in the fourth quarter. They did not get it done. LSU forced a turnover with about three minutes and change left in the game in plus territory and they couldn't score. They had several chances. If you missed this game, LSU had several chances. This was not Bama shutting them down. Then they score a little backdoor touchdown to get it to within a slimmer margin than the game actually was played at. No, 
This was competitive, and LSU nearly found a way to win this game. Alabama had to do something they used to have to do all the time, but they don't have to do it much anymore. They had to ask the defense to win a game. And Will Anderson, which seems like about three people, in, even though he's just one when you watch him on TV, Will Anderson, uh, Drew Sanders, good for him yesterday. I think Phil Mathis was wonderful for him yesterday. Those guys, Braswell Shine, those guys got the job done for Alabama. But it was close. So let's dive into this because all I could think when I was watching this game at its conclusion yesterday, all I could think was week one results are the devil. They're the literal devil. You might as well have Miss Boucher in your ear telling you, do not trust week one results. Do you remember in the summer when you and I would talk just freely and casually as friends do in the summer about Alabama? And I'd do some of the Q&As and some Bama fans, you guys would ask, what should the expectation be this year? I mean, even you guys in and around the Bama program, you knew you were losing a whole lot of talent. But you got talent on campus still and all those recruiting classes. You don't just write them off. But the question was, how good can Bama really be this year when you lose so much first-round talent off one side of the ball? Let's remember those names. Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddell, Mac Jones, Najee Harris. So many guys that are just very, very hard to replace. And you lost them all at once. And so what we talked about as we were leading up to that Miami game, that's who Alabama opened with in week one, is we were talking about how it's going to be a struggle early on. Eventually, they'll find a rhythm and they'll be whatever maximum version of themselves they can be, but it wasn't going to be any kind of seamless transition. And what I kept saying was people need to get comfortable with the idea of Alabama struggling offensively, maybe still winning games, but just having to do it a little bit different way than you're used to seeing. Then the Miami game happened, and they won 44-13, to and I let it happen to me. I let it fool me a little bit. And all of a sudden, it made me seemingly look dumb because I'd been sitting there telling you, hey, Miami, they've been, they've been given a lot of points in this game, and Alabama's going to have a lot more trouble than I think the perception would lead you to believe of replacing all this offensive talent. And then they blow Miami out. It was a lie. Week one lied to you. Since then, what have we seen? Well, we fast-forwarded a couple of months, and they've lost outright to Texas A&M, and they squeaked past Florida, and they squeaked past LSU. Six yards total rushing yesterday. Even when I factor out the sack yardage, they barely rushed for 30 yards. Bama folks used to brag, deservedly so, about holding Leonard Fournette under 35 total yards rushing. LSU one-upped you last night in your own building. They did to you what you did to Fournette once upon a time. The only difference is uh, this is not exactly a stone wall of an LSU defensive fortress that we're talking about this year. But how did this happen and what does it mean? Because it's very strange. Two hires that should have been grand slams for Alabama are drawing a lot of heat today. And I'm not so sure I don't agree with it. Although I'm not one, as you well know by this point, to sit here and question individual play calling or individual technique that's being taught. Number one, because we don't really know. And secondly, I'm not the guy who's equipped to do that. I'm going to leave it to the experts on Twitter. But Doug Marone goes from being an NFL head coach to being tasked with coaching Alabama's offensive line. And it seems like that is a legitimate move. It seems like that's a baller move by Nick Saban. He's just racking up former NFL head coaches to be position coaches. Well, their offensive line has looked poor outside of 
isolated spots. Their offensive line has looked poor. And if you do listen to people who have coached the position for a living, they will talk in a lot more intricate detail about it not just being a talent issue, it's, it's scheme specific. Again, I'm not wading into those waters because that's not a language I speak, but people who do speak the language, whom I respect, do look at Doug Marone and they say, man, I expected more. And then you work your way up the ladder a couple of rungs and we're talking about Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien goes from NFL head coach to being a college offensive coordinator. And again, these are guys who are highly thought of and it's just, again, if you talk to some people who, who coach the game themselves, I did a couple of times, because trust me, I had time sitting in a lonely airport terminal today. They just look at it and they say, look, I'm not, I'm not throwing the guy on the trash heap wholesale. It's just what they're doing. Fundamentally, schematically, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Given the pre-snap looks, for instance, and how much cushion at times on the outside you have, by the way of LSU defensively playing you, you know, there are just some things that would be automatic go-tos, staples, quick underneath stuff, slants and whatnot, that you just didn't see a whole lot yesterday that would have greatly alleviated some of the pressure. You look at the sacks and the pressures that LSU got on Bryce Young. It wasn't always, it was at times, it wasn't always defensive linemen. It was corners and it was linebackers. That's just blitzes getting home and inability to pick it up. And LSU having no qualms about doing it because you have no answer for it. Whew. So yeah, I mean, you expect that kind of stuff early in the game. Then you expect Alabama to settle in it. It was just, it was a game where they never really settled into it. So we said all last week that we were looking forward to this LSU game. Why? Not because we thought it was going to come down to the wire, even though it did. But I had circled this Alabama game coming out of the bye because I said to you last week, for better or for worse, I think we'll have a good indication of what Alabama is going to be through the stretch run. Well, I have no clue if last night is what Alabama's going to be through the stretch run. But if it is, they're not going to Atlanta. If it is, you may see other representation from the West. It may be Texas A&M. Do you guys realize, by the way, how close A&M was to grabbing control of the SEC West last night? Because you did not fathom that it was possible for LSU to beat Alabama, you had not allowed your mind to go there. And a lot of folks started having to Google SEC tiebreakers and whatnot last night and realized Wait a second, A&M, they just beat Auburn. So they got two conference losses, but they got the head-to-head -head over Alabama. If Bama loses here, that's their second conference loss, and head-to-head's the tiebreaker. Oh, my goodness. And it, we were that close. And they're still not out of the woods. Alabama could easily go and lose to Auburn, and if A&M runs the table, guess what you got? You got Aggies, Bulldogs in the SEC championship game if Texas A&M is able to take care of business. So that's a big if. I mean, A&M's playing Ole Miss this week, another single-digit point spread. But it was, it was good to really see, I think, things finally come into focus. Now, it's not good if you're a Bama fan necessarily, but it makes a lot more sense because now we have proper context and we got a really proper backdrop because we have a plenty big enough sample size with Bama that we know who they are. They're a really good team. They're not a great team. They're certainly not an elite team. This is a really good team which by Bama standards means it's one of the lower caliber teams that Nick Saban has had in a while. But that's all relative because we know even the lower caliber teams that Alabama under Saban has had are still capable, if things go right, of winning a championship. Here's the difference. The difference is this team, because they're just, quote unquote, really good, they are susceptible to real world problems. You're used to watching Bama 
and knowing that you could count on them doing what Georgia did yesterday, where even if they struggle for a quarter, eventually they're going to beat you by four or five touchdowns. You know, even the close games, even the games they struggle in, there's just this minimum baseline of talent you have to have. And if you don't have it, they will drown you eventually. Bama doesn't have that this year. At least they don't have that talent performing at that high a level. And as a result, they're just like the other really good teams out there. Now, they may be a step above a Michigan State, for example, but you watch Michigan State beat Michigan, then they lose by double digits to Purdue. How does that happen? Well, when you are not elite or you're not great, then you fall into that variance tub, and you never know what you're going to draw out. And that's the reality of Alabama football right now. They're in that group of teams that is simply really good. Really good means you're going to be favored. Really good means you should win those games. Up until the SEC championship game, Bama will be favored in every one of them. But it also makes inexplicable, seemingly inexplicable results. Like last night, it brings them into play. Whereas in any other year, you never would have that in play. Last year's Bama team, even if they don't show up, they end up pulling away in that kind of game. Uh, they, they, they got away with, with legal felonies against LSU last year. Yes, there's a lot of filtration going on with what I wanted to say based on what I actually said. Uh, this year's team's just different. So the talent and the experience are the separators. That's what's pushing Bama this year. Florida even. The talent and more experience on some levels of that roster, it pushed Bama. A&M, definite talent, definite experience. You saw LSU last night. There's that minimum baseline of talent, and there were some experienced guys along that defensive line that gave Alabama problems. Here's the bigger issue. Georgia fits both of those parameters as good, if not better, than any team I just listed. They got a ton of talent, and they got a ton of grown men physically and on their birth certificate. They got a ton of grown men. So that's where Bama is right now. But I'm telling you, you know, we're going to talk about these other teams in just a second. Ohio State, Bama, Oklahoma, I don't believe any of them have played to their potential yet. And I don't think we're going to make it to December with none of them catching some kind of stride. I don't know who it's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be a one for three, two for three, or three for three. I think it's coming from someone. You just run out of time. The calendar says November now, so you start running out of time. Speaking of the Buckeyes, let's talk about them. Uh, this was a very, very interesting situation for me personally. So Ohio State beat Nebraska yesterday, 26 to 17. Very interesting personal experience for me. I say that because I was at the Auburn-Texas A&M game. This game's going on sort of simultaneous, I guess. And I thought I was seeing Ohio State pull away and open up an absolute can on Nebraska. That's what I thought I was seeing early. Because the last thing my eyes saw before I took myself down to the field for the game I was at was I saw Smith and Jigba taking a ball about 75 some odd yards to the house and Ohio State going up 17 to 3. And I think to myself, as many of you probably did, oh, here it goes. I guess Ryan Day has this team's attention. They started off a little slow, but here we go now. They've turned it on. So you can imagine my surprise when I head up to the press box for halftime and I look and it's a dogfight and it is tense. And there's some white knuckling going on in Columbus, Ohio. Look, I think Ryan Day was dead on the money with how he categorized this game this week. Uh, we have talked about Nebraska ad nauseum. And we have had them ranked even when they were 3-5 and five and 3-6. and six. And I gave you the simple explainer. And it was the very simple explanation of, well, there aren't 25 teams that would be favored over them. I mean, that's how simple and cut and dry it's been for us. There aren't 25 better teams than Nebraska out there on a given Saturday. 
There are 25 better records, but again, this is college football. What are one of the three big lies out there? You are what your record says you are. Well, no, you're not. No, you're because in this case, going into yesterday, and now let's count yesterday's nine point loss against Ohio State. Listen to this craziness. I mean, they don't give you any more credit for this, but Scott Frost, they got an eight point loss to Illinois, seven point loss to Oklahoma, three point loss to Michigan State, three point loss to Michigan, seven point loss to Minnesota, five point loss to Purdue, nine point loss to Ohio State. That's crazy. You add all that up. I mean, their team's getting beat by worse than that on one day. That's the combined margin of loss. Now, Nebraska 3-7. and seven. I already looked at the JP poll. They rose. So, a little spoiler for you. Nebraska's going to be rated for us again this week higher than number 25. How is that possible? Well, I think you saw a pretty good indicator yesterday of how it's possible. Because they're that kind of team. They're a good team. They just happen to be on the wrong side of zero, which is all that matters when it comes to record keeping in a lot of these games. Look, I saw some criticism of C.J. Stroud, quarterback for Ohio State. And I'm not necessarily there with you guys. My biggest criticism, as I've watched him, of C.J. Stroud has been his either inability or maybe the better word is unwillingness to run the ball and to get some tough yards when the play breaks down. I'm not talking about going full Zach Calzada mode and, and lowering your shoulder with reckless abandon across the middle. Man, there, there are some chunks of field that C.J. Stroud just has given to him that he doesn't take. And I don't know if that's a coaching point. That's why I don't really go too far down the road of questioning it. But look, he was 36 of 54, 405 through the air yesterday, had two touchdowns, the two picks, and then another one that very well could have been a pick. Those were the criticisms that I heard a lot. But look, I also hear a lot of people accurately criticizing Ohio State's offensive line right now with good reason. I don't think the unit as a whole has performed up to the level of capability that those individuals should be performing at. But you got to choose one or the other. I mean, just one of our general rules around here is if you got a first-year quarterback, Bama's in the same boat right now, worse than Ohio State. you got a first-year quarterback who's putting up even decent numbers, much less than the numbers Young and Stroud are putting up, and the A criticism of your offense is the O-line, you don't get to criticize the quarterback as well. I mean, they're doing all they can and even more probably than should be expected given that you've got a question mark of an offensive line. Look, I also, and I, I heard this criticism too a lot, uh, Ransom safety there for Ohio State got targeted a couple of times yesterday. And I know you Buckeye fans saw that. I know a lot of folks watching saw that, and I can tell you, obviously, future opponents will see that. So there's some liability still on that back end. You don't clean up every potential flaw you have just by moving some coaches around because it's the players ultimately still on the field. So what's Ohio State going to do the rest of the way? Because I thought this was a good win for them. I know they're going to get criticized because they didn't cover and, and it's a sub-500 team, whatever. You know we think a little bit deeper than that. And so we, we telegraphed this thing all week. We took Ohio State to win. We took Nebraska plus the points. Ryan Day was right in what he said about that game all week. Nebraska was a quality opponent. Ohio State will not get enough credit for going on the road and getting the win because they're judged at a different level. And there are valid criticisms of the team. But they won. And so now, this week they're playing Purdue. And we just talked about the potential vulnerability points at safety. Well, it's interesting that Purdue comes to town and you're favored by 20 against them because Purdue lit Michigan State up through the air this week. Michigan State's vulnerable on the back end of the defense. And so a lot of people look at that, and then they look at Ohio State, 
And Ohio State, they're, I guess, stumbling a little bit. You know, maybe you caught them, you clipped them on the jaw, and they're just staggered. They're certainly not down. There's not a three, four, or five count. But a lot of people, including myself, are just interested to see how they respond. It's about response this time of year. You know what you're capable of. You know you haven't put it on the field yet, at least consistently. How do you respond? Nick Saban's asking the same thing about his team. Lincoln Riley's been asking the same thing. That's what Ryan Day's asking this week. But as I just said with the Alabama game, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Bama, I keep going to those three teams because I don't think any of them have sustained the level of play that I think they're capable of, and I don't know which one of them or which ones of them are going to do it. I just I think it's coming. It may be Ohio State who doesn't. I think it's coming. I, what I'm trying to tell you is I don't think when we get to the playoff, the conversation point will still be, it's Georgia, and then there's a huge gap, and then there's these other teams. That has nothing to do with Georgia. Georgia's playing phenomenal football right now. It has to do with me thinking one or multiples of these other teams are going to hit a different gear maybe down this November stretch. So that's independent of Georgia. That's, that's me saying Georgia's done everything and then some they should do. I wonder if one or more of these teams are going to. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Uh, let's move on. Let's now go to where I was yesterday. And by the way, thank you for being tuned in. I know I, I have the computer over here, and I cannot look at the live chat as much as I want to. But here, H-E-Y. Hey, okay, there we go. So I just waved at you and said hey in the live chat. Thank you so much for tuning in live. Uh, you will be rewarded momentarily because we've got four best bets coming up. Texas A&M 20, Auburn 3. Not a single offensive touchdown was scored in this thing. Texas A&M defensively shined, Auburn defensively shined. But I was walking around last night and I look on the ground and I found this. And this is a receipt and all it says at the bottom is State of Alabama. And so if anyone in College Station owns the entire state of Alabama, this is your receipt. This obviously is, well that was a lame attempt at humor. This obviously is a win over Auburn coming off the heels a month ago of a win over Alabama and A&M now owns the state of Alabama this year. It's not a sentence you thought you were going to be saying when Zach Calzada was struggling to move the ball down the field against Colorado, but he's come a long way. Zach Calzada, I, I don't know that they give out individual game MVPs, nor would he have gotten it yesterday if it was a piece of hardware. Oh, he's got so much respect in that locker room. He's got so much respect from that fan base. I'm going to talk about it in a second. But, man, there's a, so there's a good Casey Musgrave song out right now called Justified. Since she lives in our neighborhood... Let's give her a shout out. I'm sure she's watching the show. But there's a lyric in the song that says healing doesn't happen in a straight line. Well, that's very apropos 
because just as Casey Musgraves tells you healing doesn't happen in a straight line, I'm telling you in my own less musical way, building a program and progress as you do it, that doesn't always happen in a straight line either. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions that I think college football fans have. You look at a coach takeover, year one, year two, year three, and you think if you chart it out, there's supposed to be this data point, this data point, this data point, and you're supposed to be able to draw a line and it looks nice and neat, and that's not the way sports works. That's not the way competition works. When the other guy is recruiting his you-know-what off and their players are playing their you-know-what off, sometimes you lose, sometimes you win. You just lose more than you win initially. Then it's about a wash. Then you start winning more than you lose. But if you try and marry yourself to week-to-week -week results, you'll drive yourself crazy. I mean, think about Texas A&M. And think about when Jimbo Fisher took over. You know, they play Clemson close that first year, and A&M was rocking. But then what did they do? Well, they lost to Mississippi State. And so it's an up, and then it's a down. And, of course, they got blown out by Bama a couple times. But they beat Florida at home, and it's a, it's a down, then it's an up. And then they win the Orange Bowl last year. And then this year, they drop back-to-back -back games. Arkansas, Mississippi State, so it's up and then it's a down and it's another down. And then they upset Bama out of nowhere at home and you're sky high and now you got a winning streak going. Well, what would that look like if you plotted it out? It would look like spaghetti, it's all over the place. Progress is happening there. It's just not always happening in a pretty little perfect straight line like you want it to. So yesterday, Texas A&M holds Auburn to a season low, total offensive output. This is what you should do when you're coming out of the bye and you're relatively speaking about as healthy as you're going to be all year. Auburn had 226 total yards of offense yesterday. They had 73 yards on the ground. That's 2.5 per clip. Pretty close to a padlock stat, to be honest, if you told me Friday. I would have needed to know the turnover situation. But Bo Nix did not complete a pass over 15 yards all day. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you do that to a classic quarterback, that means that you did not allow him to stand in the pocket and pick you apart and hit a couple of deep shots. But with Bo Nix, when I tell you he didn't complete a ball over 15 yards all day, that means you did not allow him to get out of the pocket and you did not allow those Auburn wide receivers to do what they're best at, which is improving on broken plays. Because that's how Auburn would have beaten Texas A&M. You would have had a lot of stagnation even if Auburn won offensively. But there would have been these, these blips on an otherwise dull radar screen where Bo Nix made something happen out of nothing. A&M avoided those plays yesterday, and because of that, they choked away any shot Auburn had at winning this game. They kept Bo Nix contained. There were no offensive touchdowns for Auburn. For that matter, there were none for Texas A&M. I think lost in this game was a really good effort on the part of Auburn defensively. But you talk about the winners. I mean, that's the way it goes. Zach Calzada, quarterback for Texas A&M, let me tell you something. He did not start the year as their starter, Haynes King did, but man, it's tough to find a quarterback out there with more universal respect inside a program. Now, I know if you're watching at home and you're not a fan of the team, sometimes this doesn't come through. It depends on how much the broadcast team wants to focus on it, and I have not watched the replay, so I don't know how much they focused on it yesterday, but Calzada tucks the ball and goes over the middle and gets lit up by Smoke Monday. And initially, it looked like he was concussed, and that's what the word around the sideline was. But he wasn't concussed. He dislocated his shoulder. So they had to pop that thing back in place on the field. He goes in the medical tent. Uh, I thought he was done. That A&M sideline thought he was done. And he comes back out and ends up winning the game. A&M ends up winning the game. There's been so much progress there. I mean, this is a testament to Jimbo Fisher. This is the kind of stuff that's not lighting up the scoreboard and the stat sheet, 
But you got to be so proud of that if you're Jimbo Fisher and that offensive staff because you're seeing it. Again, it's plot points all over the place, but if you draw that line and you cluster it all, it's trending upwards. It's trending in the right direction. Zach Calzada, man, when that crowd thought he was done, again, I don't know what they showed on TV, but that crowd, when they thought he was done, it's one of the last, it was like a WWF Monday Night Raw circa late 90s chant of Zach Calzada's name just echoing 109,000 and change there, second biggest crowd in Kyle Field history. They love him. They love him. And they're fair in their assessment. Look, they, they just like Zach Calzada does, they know the deal. When you're playing football at this level, you're always going to have competition. And so if you wanted to get a, a head start and a sneak peek on 2022, look, if he's the starter there next year, it'll be because he's beat other talented guys out. And that will come when it comes. But right now, Zach Calzada is the guy leading this team. Even if he doesn't have the big stat line, he is a leader on that team. It was so striking to me when I listened to PV and those guys post-game, a lot of defensive players, and how they talked about Calzada. let you know what the dynamic in a locker room is like. And I'll tell you another little interesting tidbit from talking to some folks close to A&M after the game that you just don't think about. I would have never thought about this. You watch Calzada run across the middle, and you watch the way that he, he carries himself and the way he delivers the ball sometimes. And, and it, it gets the job done, but sometimes it, it looks a little funny. And I never would have thought about this. Most of the time, I would venture to say 95-plus percent of the time, when you're watching a guy that's good enough to play quarterback at the major college level, he physically developed early. He just He's bigger, he's faster, he's stronger, or a combination of those traits. But normally... The genetics are just such that those guys developed. They were, they were looking like that or a version of that by 8th or ninth grade, and then they just they added some icing on top of that cake 11th and 12th grade. That's why we're able to rate quarterbacks so early in their high school tenure. Well, Calzada did not have it play out for him like that. Calzada developed a little bit later. Now, here's what's interesting, and I want you to just think about this and how this would impact you. You want to play the quarterback position, you really got to start getting some specialized coaching and training when you get in high school. Now, most of the time, guys are physically to the point where you know what height and weight they're going to be playing at. Therefore, you know how to tailor the way you build them and the way you train them and coach them to their skill set. Calzada developed and was trained as an undersized quarterback. And so he's got a lot of tendencies that undersized quarterbacks would have. But now he's big. I mean, I stand next to him and look up a little bit. He's big. And yet he still plays sometimes with that 5'9", 5'10", mentality. I mean, you watch him go over the middle yesterday and you watch him bend over. Look, if he was 5'10", or 5'9", and he bent over, probably would have gotten low enough. Well, he's not. He's big. And so he didn't get low enough and he dislocated his shoulder. That's a very interesting thing because I don't think I've ever had it presented to me quite that way about other players. But he's battled all year. I mean, there have been some injuries that obviously you've seen happen, maybe some stuff you hadn't seen happen. And that's always the case. You, listen, if you could see what's underneath a quarterback's jersey or a defensive lineman's jersey, when you could see how many miles of tape are gone through in that training room and a brace here and a, a different kind of apparatus or device there. Look, those guys, no one is even close to 100%. Unfortunately, everyone gets graded on the same scale. They just assume if you're on the field, you're 100% and we're going to grade you. Well, that's not always the case. And so a lot of times when you see a team and a program so effusive in their respect and their praise and adoration for a guy, it's because maybe sometimes they know what he's going through a little bit more than the crowd at home does, a little bit more than the crowd in the stands does. 
Hats off to Zach Calzada. That guy was a warrior yesterday. And man, fireworks got started before this game got started. Walter Nolan, our number two composite player overall, I believe, number one defensive lineman in the country, committed to Texas A&M right before the game. You know, if I didn't know any better, Colin, I would say that was orchestrated. Far be it for Jimbo Fisher to ever do something like that. They got Chris Marshall yesterday. He's a high four-star guy too. They got a shot at the number one class. We've never said that before. Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M, they got a shot at the number one class. So when you're starting to map out the plot points and you're starting to try and chart the progression of Texas A&M football, you're really going to have to start taking recruiting as serious as you ever have because they're still in it for a number of big-time targets. They are selling College Station. I don't know how you couldn't have been in love with that environment if you were there yesterday. I don't know how they got that weather to be that nice either, but it did not hurt that it was about 68 and sunny uh, through the duration of that game. So Texas A&M wins. I've got a lot more to say about that game and our experience in College Station on the Tuesday morning Late Kick Extra podcast. Had such a good time there. Such great people. I mean, we get treated. We've never been treated poorly when we go on the road. Some places go above and beyond. If you're watching on YouTube, look at this place. If I were to take you to one place on the college football map that would just perfectly encapsulate what makes this sport so different, it'd be Kyle Field. It'd be College Station, Texas. It's like a different universe. Some of you like to make fun of it. Because Texas A&M, I was talking to Colin before the show A&M, it seems they have like a hundred traditions totally unique to themselves. Sometimes when you go around the country, you know, this team and that team and this team, they'll all do a version of the same thing. A&M doesn't do a version of anything anyone else does. Okay, for better or for worse, depending on your perspective, that place is totally unique. What I love about the A&M fans is they couldn't care less about anyone who ever makes fun of it. Because they view it as, number one, ours. Therefore, you wouldn't get it anyway. And secondly, it's ours, and therefore, we don't really care what you think about it. And thirdly, we're winning. So we can't really hear you to begin with. So you're going to have to speak up, get on our level, if you will. So Texas A&M football rolling right now. It was a good time to be there yesterday. It may not be the last time that we see them this year. Who knows what's going to happen with A&M. They're still in it. They're probably going to be ranked top 10 in the playoffs come Tuesday. Uh, JP Poll, TBD, we'll see. But, man, Texas A&M, if – if you told me that that's a team that had a bona fide potential SEC championship slash college football playoff top 10 stretch run in them, when I was leaving um, Arlington, Texas, having watched them go down to Arkansas, I never would have believed you. So it's a very good coaching job happening out there and a very good recruiting job now too. Uh, several more games here. So let's rapid fire our way through, uh, what, like half a dozen other things that caught my eye yesterday. Iowa State beat Texas yesterday, not in the first half, because no one beats Texas in the first half, but in the game, because everyone beats Texas in the second half. Yet another halftime lead, yet another blown halftime lead in the second half. Uh, Texas, uh, it's been the worst case to the best case to the worst case again when it comes to the whole quarterback dynamic. All the way back in preseason, we were talking about the whole Hudson card, Casey Thompson thing. Every single late kick, it seemed like we were having a new quarterback update and it ended up being Hudson Card. But then they go to Arkansas, and they get down, and Casey Thompson comes in. And then Casey Thompson, he's starting Red River, and he shines. And they lose, but he puts up big numbers, and it looks like Casey Thompson has taken that job by the throat. But it's a long season, and people get a, a little bit of film on you, and they get a little bit of a chance to diagnose you and what they would do against you. And, man, it gets, it gets to be a long month of November. October and then November, like we said, it can seem like about 13 weeks sometimes. And so that's what led 
to again, kind of the merry-go-round at the quarterback position. And you're not doing that this late in the year and having a lot of success. If you are, you're very much the exception to the rule. So yesterday they played both guys and neither of them uh, did anything particularly of note. And now Texas, I believe they are four and five and they've got Kansas at West Virginia and Kansas State coming up. And if I'm right, off the top of my head, uh, them being four and five, they're going to need two of those in order to make a bowl. And that's a team that had illusions of maybe fringe playoff uh, contender status early in the season, Big 12 championship. Well, that's all out the window. Uh, they got a very, very poor streak going right now that they've got to rectify. A lot of criticism about Sark. No, not even starting to go there. I certainly think there's an assessment that's done at the end of every season by the head coach. And so he'll do the same thing this year. I'm much more paid attention to their recruiting right now, honestly, than I am their win and loss record. Iowa State, though, three losses right now. Uh, two of them are in conference. They still have a shot. They are a two-loss team in the Big 12. Still got a shot. They're, as I can tell, best case would be Oklahoma winning every game except when they play them. Because Oklahoma still plays Baylor. We're going to be at that game Saturday in Waco. So Oklahoma at Baylor, Iowa State needs Sooners to win that game. You know, Iowa State need the Sooners to beat Oklahoma State down the road. They just need them to drop one in Norman to them while they're at it. Tennessee 45, Kentucky 42. This sounded like a classic to me. I was listening to it on the radio driving my prison inmate van back from College Station to Austin last night. And what a great story that's going to be on the Tuesday morning podcast. One of the biggest recruiting billboards in college football right now is just what Hendon Hooker is doing under Josh Heupel at Tennessee. Phenomenal job of development, of coaching, of maximizing and utilizing the pieces you have. And to be clear, Josh Heupel and his staff, first year there, and it, they came in under far less than ideal circumstances, as you remember, and yet Hendon Hooker, yesterday, 15 of 20, 316 yards, four touchdowns, but they are getting the job done. And again, there are other teams out there with far more talented overall rosters that wish they could get the kind of production level that Josh Heupel has gotten in year zero slash year one, however you want to phrase it, at Tennessee. Many good things can be said. Uh, many poor things can be said about SEC officiating. Th that's a course that we're seeing every week now. It just it totally boggles my mind how what we're putting on the field as an officiating product in the SEC is tolerated right now, but it is. So I'm, I'm just going to let it be. But I will say this, as good a night as this was for Tennessee, they got the win, 45-42. I told you over the last month, a lot of people in Knoxville had this game circled. That's the one. Well, now you look at the box score. And remember when they played Ole Miss, they came out on the wrong side. And I said compounding matters is they were on the field for over 90 plays defensively. And that caught up to them the next week against Alabama. Well, Tennessee plays Kentucky. And then they got Georgia. This time, Tennessee's coming off a win. And they're playing Georgia this week. Line on that thing's about 21. Georgia by 21. Georgia minus 21. Here is potentially a big problem. Yesterday, this box score makes no sense. I mean, this thing's crazy. Uh, Tennessee ran 47 plays. They scored 45. They ran 47 plays. That's pretty good points per play average if you want to save yourself the math out there. Why don't you take a guess at how many plays Kentucky ran in this loss? You think 79? No. 89? No. How about 99 total plays Kentucky ran yesterday? 
I think they ran it 50 times and threw it 49 times. And so you got the win. What kind of price will your defensive roster pay when they play the University of Georgia, most physical team in this conference, this coming week, in the second half particularly? Some other very oddball facets to this box score. 461 to 612, Tennessee got outgained. And the time of possession, shout out to our buddy Parker, Stats of War, 14 minutes to 46 minutes? Yeah, exactly. That's a big gap. It didn't end up mattering, but that's a big gap. So Tennessee wins. Congratulations to the Vols. 21-point dogs. By far the most potent passing attack that Georgia will have faced all year. And a lot of people are excited to watch that, myself included. What about Cincinnati? I would say outside of the Bama LSU game, more people wanted to talk to me about this game than any other game that happened yesterday, the Florida game notwithstanding. Cincy 28, Tulsa 20. This is the high wire effect on full display. The high wire effect, to be clear, is once you get deeper and deeper into the season, the high wire just goes up a story, up a story, up a story. See, you start the year, and you know you can't be affording to lose a whole lot, but you're, you're like 10 feet off the ground. And so if you fall, oh, it hurts. It hurts. You may even break a finger or two, but you can fall 10 feet. You can't fall 10 stories. And now the problem with teams that haven't been there before this late in the year is they're trying to walk the high wire, but instead of 10 feet above the street, they're 10 stories above the street. And you fall at 10 stories, you don't have a broken pinky. You are street pizza. You're done. And Cincinnati is finding out, just like some other teams have before them, what it's like to walk that high wire this late in the year at this kind of altitude. Cincinnati's a better team than Tulsa. They're probably more than eight points better than Tulsa. They won by eight yesterday. Now here's what's happening. The camps have already formed on the Cincinnati front. You either think based on principle alone of them being undefeated, they belong in the top four, or you believe that there's more to it than just how many games have you won because we have to have a more nuanced, properly contextualized conversation about strength of schedule. And if you are in that camp, you had your opinion of Cincinnati probably lessened again yesterday. I think they're right where they should be, and I wouldn't really change anything about them after yesterday. But, man, the similarities between the way they had to win and the way Bama had to win, pretty striking. Cincinnati had to make a defensive stand of their own, a couple of them actually, in the last portion of this game. They lost Jerome Ford, ironically a former Alabama running back. Cincinnati lost Jerome Ford in the second quarter, and so that, that really put a damper on their ability to run the ball. Bama lost a center yesterday and couldn't run the ball worth anything. So there was a lot of Cincy-Bama comparison to be had yesterday. Tulsa held the ball all game. I don't know what the time of possession there was. Uh, one of my most favorite stats in the world. But look, they ran the ball for 300 on Cincinnati. I mean, so th there are holes. No one ever painted this as a perfect team. Credit to them for the win. If you've spoken about them in the proper context, you can leave it at that. If you've tried to manufacture top three, top four material out of this team, then you've got a lot of explaining to do that you shouldn't have to do. Uh, because Cincinnati's not one of the three or four best teams in America, but they're also not outside the top 10. There is a, a very, very comfortable tier between that six to 10 range where they should be, and teams in that range can win 28 to 20 against Tulsa and be told, oh, you should have done better, but good for you, move on. That's where we have Cincinnati. Therefore, I'm not gonna criticize them a whole lot. Credit them for winning. They did what a, a team in that range uh, could be expected to do 
in one of their poorer efforts, and that's what Cincinnati did. Michigan State falls yesterday 40-29 to to Purdue. I got a padlock stat for you. You tell me this Friday, I'm telling you, boiler up. Uh, Aiden O'Connell, most of you don't know who that is. That is the Purdue quarterback. How about 40 of 54, 536 yards passing, three touchdowns, no interceptions. As we said earlier in the show, and we've said it before, the back end of Michigan State's defense, that is the clear vulnerability spot, uh, probably for them as a team, Purdue and Jeff Brom knew it. Purdue and Jeff Brom attacked it. They'll look to do the same thing against Ohio State this week. But I thought our buddies over at College Football Nerds asked a really interesting question about Purdue earlier today. If I can actually pause long enough to pull their account up, I will read it to you verbatim. But I want you to think about this uh, while I kill time and pull it up. Here it is, actually. I don't have to kill any more time. So I want you to listen to this closely and understand what they're saying through me. How much of our view of Purdue football is skewed by the fact that we don't realize they played two Power Five out-of-conference games, while some played none? If you swap the Notre Dame game with just a bad G5 team, Purdue would be 7-2, and two, and among those seven wins, they would have two wins over top five teams, Iowa, obviously, and then yesterday against Michigan State. So what they're telling you, and this is dead on the money, it is a classic, you aren't what your record says you are deal. What they're saying is Purdue chose to challenge themselves in out-of-conference play. Those of you out there who believe you just are what your record says you are, what you're telling me is you're saying if Purdue, they'd be the same team, if Purdue were to remove Notre Dame from the schedule and put roast beef tech on there, win the game, you know, wins and win, win the game, well, they'd be sitting there as a 7-2 and two team. Same team you're seeing now because of a lighter schedule, would be better in the win-loss column, where would we have them? And the answer is, you'd have them right in the thick of your top 10 rankings, top 12 rankings, and they'd have two of the best wins in the country, and they'd be the same exact team, is the point. Just like if Cincinnati had played Arkansas' schedule this year, they'd in all likelihood have multiple losses as the same exact team, and you wouldn't have them anywhere sniffing the top 10. You are not what your record says you are exclusively in this sport. And a win is not exclusively a win, nor is a loss exclusively a loss. Those are two of the big lies in college football. I'll probably do a segment Tuesday night about the big lies. We had a third big lie that I had to, had to out today, and I put it out earlier today. And uh, the third big lie was going undefeated is the hardest thing to do in this sport. No, friends, going undefeated in college football is not the hardest thing to do. I would suggest to you it's a whole lot harder to go 10-2 and against Arkansas' schedule than it would be to go 12-0 and against Cincinnati's schedule. Going undefeated is great. I'm not telling you it's easy. Understand what I said and I didn't say. I didn't say it's easy to go undefeated. I said it's not the hardest thing in the sport to do. If you do it against the schedule that we're talking about there versus the schedule we're talking about over here, two different things. So I'll talk about that more Tuesday night. Hey, what about North Carolina? Wake puts up a double nickel and it's not enough. North Carolina beats them 58-55. to 55. I was relieved this happened, not because I was rooting against Wake Forest. I'm indifferent on Wake Forest. What I'm glad of now is we get to speak about Wake in the proper context. Because the way we should have been talking about Wake the whole time is it's a great story. Dave Clawson's doing great things there. This is a, a phenomenal story in the world of college football this year. And they're a very, very scrappy team. That's the way we should have been talking about Wake. They're no different a team today than they were going into yesterday. 
but they were artificially inflated by some simply because there was a goose egg in the loss column. It goes right back to the little diatribe I just had about a minute and a half ago. Well, now they've got a loss on their resume. So I don't have to listen to people give me hypotheticals about what an undefeated wake would be. Now we can talk about them in the proper context and we can credit them because I've been wanting to credit wake, but I can't do it when the standard out there was already overinflating them. Well, now people won't have them overinflated anymore. Now, even though they lost yesterday, it's going to sound weird. Credit Wake Forest. You guys are having a great season. It's very, very nice to see. Happy for you guys. Go win the rest of your games. Also, uh, the last thing I wanted to point out is Georgia wood chippered Missouri, as they tend to do every week, 43-6. to six. Now, that's not what stood out yesterday. Georgia beats pretty much everyone they play along those lines, scoreboard-wise. But Stetson Bennett, it is his show. JT Daniels came in yesterday, and you could actually... You could actually hear the hinges rust and creak. You haven't seen him in so long. And he did some good things. He did some bad things. But it, it became obvious. I mean, obviously, that's what they've seen in practice. And that's why they've got Stetson Bennett in this game. I've made my feelings known on how they could maximize their potential. Uh, I'm not going to go down that road tonight. But I did think it was noteworthy that Georgia did not exactly pound the rock for like eight yards per carry yesterday. And so, for the first time in a while, whether through necessity or choice, Todd Munkin and the offensive staff asked Stetson Bennett to do more yesterday at quarterback than they probably ever have. And he, with some exception, maybe some underthrows he didn't have to pay the ultimate price for, he didn't play bad at all. And I, I think there's, you know, there are camps that have already formed on Stetson Bennett, and you have, you have got your opinion of him. If you think he's the guy who can take Georgia to the national championship, then obviously that's not going to change based on yesterday. And if you think that he can get fat on inferior competition, but when the pressure ramps up and you're playing more high-level teams and you have to score out of necessity instead of choosing to be able to work on things that he won't be able to answer the bell, yesterday didn't change your opinion. Um, so having said that, it's always been a hard spot for us because Stetson Bennett is like a model citizen and you love, you love the tenacity, you love the competitive spirit he has, and yet you also you make an observation and you want to be true to your observation. So I've just I've kind of walked the fence on this and saying, yeah, I'll have to see them. Let me put it that way. I'd have to see them win a championship with Bennett at quarterback to believe they're capable of it, but I'll pull for him. So I guess in a way, am I pulling for myself to be wrong? I don't know, uh, but yeah, so I'm very torn on the whole Stetson Bennett thing. Uh, that is a lot of what we saw yesterday. I also want to, number one, thank you guys for being here. It is time, as we did last week, to let you know we are going to again this week go all in on the Ramen Noodle Express. We did away with limiting it to four or five picks last week. We went up and down the model and anything that was screaming at us, we moved on. Well, we went seven and three, and so that's a very, very good weekend. We have already got four that I'm ready to put on the board for you right now. This weekend, here we go. We're starting with a Wednesday night special. Central Michigan is favored by three. They're at home against Kent State. We're taking Central Michigan minus three. Michigan is at Penn State. The model loves Penn State this week. We just rode Penn State yesterday. We're hopping right back on. Penn State is at a pick. We like this all the way up to minus two and a half. And so if you're listening to me later in the week, um, listen earlier 
and get on the numbers when they're out there. But a lot of you are going to see minus one, minus one and a half. Yes. The answer is yes. It's a play for us. We got it at pick when we tweeted it out earlier. That's why it's always important. Be following at late kick Josh. We're taking Texas Tech plus 10 at home against Iowa State. And we are laying two and a half points with Miami on the road at Florida State. So in conclusion, Miami minus two and a half, Texas Tech plus 10, Penn State right at a pick, and Central Michigan minus three. Again, there's a big whole month plus coming up right now. There's a lot that's going on during the week that doesn't always happen on the show. Make sure you're following. You can tell 10 of your friends to do it as well. At Late Kick Josh on Twitter and on Instagram. A lot of good stuff from the sidelines and elsewhere yesterday. If you follow on Instagram, you see it in that story. It's one of my favorite things I do all week and all year is that Instagram story on Saturdays and um, giving you as much access and information as you want. Those are the two things that you guys ask for over anything else, access and information. All right, good week started here and I have a feeling that it's gonna continue and we're building towards on multiple fronts just fireworks all throughout the sport in November and December. You're talking about upsets coming, you're talking about teams separating, you're talking about hot seat, you're talking about potential programs making moves and recruiting that haven't been making that kind of move. Do not miss a show this time of year. Because as you see, we went an hour seven tonight. Colin, I feel like we put about four hours worth of content in this hour uh, seven minute show. So thank you so much for listening on podcast tomorrow. Thank you for making this podcast the fastest riser in this industry, in this section of this industry. And uh, only more room to go up from here. For Director Colin. I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for watching. Have a great start to your week. We'll see you here again Tuesday night. Until then, God bless. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. 